0: Welcome to Reading Marx's Grünrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 10, pages 707 through 758. Welcome back to the Grundrisse class uh, in the age of uh, Corona. Um, And uh, we've had this break uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, partly because CUNY changes the calendar around, and partly because we had spring break, so now we're coming back in. And uh, I would uh, like to let you know that we will go until May 5th and May 5th will be the last uh, class in the series. Uh, May 5th is a very uh, auspicious day because it happens to be Marx's birthday. So we can celebrate Marx's birthday and uh, finish off the Grundrisse at the same time. Um, now, uh Last time, I had also asked uh, if there were people who might like to sort of send in some commentaries—not—not not papers or anything like that—but some commentaries on materials that uh, we'd hit uh, in the Grundrisse that you thought were important or needed further elaboration or uh, should be. Uh, source of discussion or something of that kind um it's just be very helpful to me to know uh, sort of uh, what some people out there are thinking because right now it's all sort of very abstract and I'm, I'm pretty much used to that as a as an educator that you teach things and you never know who picks them up and how and why and uh, for instance, uh, just yesterday, I had a, uh, an email from somebody I taught at Hopkins 25 years ago, who's now loose in Australia, and said, you know, there are two things I learned from your class, and it always stayed with me. And they were both things that came out of the Grundrisse. One was the annihilation of space by time, and the other was the insistence that uh, you prioritize the thinking of processes rather than things, and that uh, these, these were two ideas that come out of the Grundrisse in a very strong kind of way, uh, and so I'd be very curious as to what kinds of things uh, might stick with you uh, in uh, future times. So if you could help uh, me in that way, I would be very grateful for some feedback and commentary on some of the things we're looking at. Now, we left things last time right in the middle of, uh, of actually a very uh, significant part of the Grundrisse, which is talking about uh, the importance and significance of fixed capital. Um, now, uh, this is the one place in all of Marx's writings where fixed capital gets a real big going over in almost every dimension. So. Um, and it's a very, it's a very important topic, and, and clearly Marx sees it that way, that uh, the, to the degree that fixed capital uh, starts to become uh, a, uh, a business, uh, and uh, innovation becomes a business, and insofar as fixed capital starts to incorporate science and technology, uh, and and replaces where. The uh, worker is located within the system, and uh, as Marx suggests in these passages uh, that we were looking at last time, uh, fixed capital reduces the significance of labour uh, to such a point that there is even a question as to whether the theory of value is, is relevant anymore uh, and also to what degree the politics of the class struggle between you know labour and capital uh, gets uh, mediated or even transformed uh, by uh, the arrival of science and technology as being a singular power in the production process. And that uh, there are all sorts of implications which uh, flow from fixed capital. Uh, and uh, Marx uh, lays some of these out uh, and, and uh, in some rather splendid prose uh, and and this, is a very, uh, so this is a very fascinating argument, and, and one which is very relevant to the degree that Marx is actually covering questions similar to those that we're confronted with when we ask the question, what's going to happen with artificial intelligence? What's going to happen to labor uh, as a consequence of the introduction of artificial intelligence? What's the point of artificial intelligence? And in the course of this, Marx uh, does raise, uh, I think, a very important uh, kind of question that to the degree that science and technology gets incorporated into uh, innovation and the innovations start to increase the productivity of labor, uh, then we end up with uh, a tremendous uh, kind of uh, output uh, of uh, productive activity with very, in many instances, very little labor input, though. Uh, I was challenging that in the sense that there are many sectors of the economy where labor input is still very high, and, and, and uh, we therefore uh, should be wary of treating the account that Marx lays here as being the only story in town. But it's, it's a very compelling story, and I think it picks up on some very important issues. But it's not the complete story and, and of course, that's the the story of the Grundrisse, really. It's it's an incomplete uh, set of uh, thinking uh, and very valuable to to challenge us in all sorts of directions, but uh, you can't really say, well, okay, this is the the, uh, interpretation and this is the thing we have to take uh, from it. But one of the things that uh, Marx mentioned uh, Uh, On the very last page that we dealt with last time, on page 706, Marx uh, quotes somebody by saying, what is wealth? Uh, And uh, the the answer that he gives is a a quotation from uh, uh, one of the uh, post-Ricardian socialists, truly wealthier nation, when the working day is six rather than 12 hours. And then goes on and says, Wealth is not command over surplus labor time, but rather disposable time outside that needed in direct production for every individual and the whole society. Now, there's an interesting kind of question. Would you rather live in a society where wealth is distributed as a lot of things, or would you rather live in a society? where wealth is distributed in terms of disposable time so that you had as much free time as you wanted because all the basic necessities were taken care of. So what is wealth is is a question which is raised here and I think it's a very significant one. And as I pointed out when we were dealing with this, there's a distinction between wealth and value. Uh, wealth is the material conditions of of life and, and uh, the command over assets, the command over Uh, money, power, and all the rest of it, whereas value, of course, is the socially necessary labor time, which is a social relation uh, which uh, underpins what market exchange is about and which affects uh, the daily life uh, of the laborer. So Marx continues then in the passages we're looking at today uh, by taking up the whole kind of question of the development of fixed capital. Uh, and starts off with this idea saying the development of fixed capital indicates in still another respect the degree of development of wealth generally or of capital. The aim of production oriented directly towards use value as well as of that directly oriented towards exchange value is the product itself destined for consumption. The part of production which is oriented towards production of fixed capital does not produce direct objects of individual gratification the machine is in the background, uh, to production. Uh, So what this this meant then means that only when a certain degree of productivity has already been reached, so that a part of production time is sufficient for immediate production, can an increasingly large part be applied to the production of the means of production. Now, in the earlier passages, Marx had started to distinguish between fixed capital, and circulating capital. Uh, and it starts off, and this is kind of a very loose sort of distinction, but this distinction hardens as the analysis proceeds to say there are two distinctive forms of circulation here. The form of circulation is circulating capital, which flows in, into immediate production and produces the goods which end on our table or, or in, in, in the shop. That's circulating capital. Fixed capital is something that lies behind behind that, and has a different logic of circulation. So you have these two different logics of circulation, circulating capital and fixed capital, and we analyze them so far rather separately. And what Marx begins to do here uh, is to start to look at the relationship between the two. Uh, for instance, fixed capital absorbs a great deal of capital in building of the machines or building of the railways or building and all that kind of stuff. It absorbs a great deal, so it takes away Uh, production capacity, from the production of consumer goods, which support daily life. So there's a relationship between the circulating capital and the fixed capital, that that you need to take away some of the value which is circulating in order to locate it in the fixed capital. So there is this transition, if you like. And here Marx is kind of saying that to the degree that more and more value flows into the production of means of production, that is fixed capital, there is less available for the satisfaction of daily needs and daily life. Uh, And he then kind of says that uh, this flow of value into production of uh, fixed capital requires that society be able to wait, that a large part of the wealth already created can be withdrawn both from immediate consumption and from production for immediate consumption, in order to employ this part for labor which is not immediately productive within the material production process itself." In other words, the, obviously, the easiest thing here is to say, well, okay, the sort of example here is you want to build a railway line, uh, and uh, in order to build a railway line it takes you, I don't know, uh, 10 years to build a railway line, or if you're in China, it'll take you three years to build a railway line, but you've still got to wait over 10 years until uh, the railway line can be used, and so you have to be prepared to wait. And during that time, you have to feed the workers who are working on building the railway line, you have to you know, pay all of the incidental expenses, the energy, and, and buy the materials and all that kind of thing, so that has to be taken out of circulating capital. So circulating capital is going to be diminished, uh, in order for there to be a flow from circulating capital into uh, uh, the production of fixed capital. And the fixed capital will not actually start to affect productivity uh, for a good period of time, in, in, in instances, uh, you know, be several years before you, before you can actually start to use it. So, so Marx continues that this, this, all of this, he says, requires a certain level of productivity and a relative overabundance, and more specifically, a level directly related to the transformation of circulating capital into fixed capital. Uh, and he then goes on to say, as the magnitude of relative surplus labor depends on the productivity of necessary labor, so does the magnitude of labor time, living as well as objectified, employed on the production of fixed capital depend on the productivity of the labor time spent in the direct production of products. That is the, uh, the, the productivity uh, in, of the capital which is uh, circulating. Um, then he says something interesting. He says surplus population from this standpoint, as well as surplus production, is a condition for this. That is, the output of the time employed in direct production must be larger relatively than is directly required for the reproduction of the capital employed in these branches of industries. The smaller the direct fruits borne by fixed capital, the less it intervenes in the direct production process, the greater must be this relative surplus population and surplus production. Thus, more to build railways, canals, aqueducts, telegraphs, etc., than to build the machinery directly active in the direct production process. Hence, the subject to which we will return later, in the constant under and over production of modern industry, constant fluctuations and convulsions arise from the disproportion which sometimes, when sometimes too little, then again, too much circulating capital is transformed into fixed capital. Now, this has been, for me, a very, very important uh, idea that the relationship between circulating capital and fixed capital is one in which there is a constant dialogue going on between the two and they are affecting each other. And that in order for you to have the resources uh, to build the fixed capital, you need a surplus population, that is surplus labor, and you need a surplus product. Where is that surplus population and where is that surplus product coming from? Now, here Marx doesn't go into this, but, but if you read elsewhere in Marx, you'll find that, of course, surplus product, uh, uh, population, to some degree, is going to depend upon natural increase and the, the drawing in uh, of uh, uh, populations into the wage labor force, such as the, the, the destruction of peasant uh, populations and primitive accumulation on the land, all those kinds of things. So an increase in the proletariat is a necessary condition for a lot of this uh, to to, to go on. But you find also that the surplus population is partly produced by, guess what, the employment of fixed capital in production, which displaces labor. So the displacement of labor produces a surplus uh, reserve army, as Marx calls it, which is partly uh, put into reserve by technologically induced uh, unemployment. And the technology is therefore going to be used to create the reserve army. And you need a reserve army to build the technology, so there's a very interesting kind of relationship there. At the same time, capital is also prone, because of the increasing productivity, to produce more and more consumption goods. And at some point or other, there can be a problem of the absorption of those consumption goods uh, in the circulating capital so again, <clears throat> the, the two conditions which Marx is laying down here, which is the condition of a surplus product and a surplus population, capital tends to produce surplus products and surplus pro- populations anyway. And to the degree that it does so, it produces the conditions, uh, which will actually then create uh, the possibility uh, for fixed capital formation, which is going to then augment the conditions. So you can see a, dia- a, a dialectical kind of process in which, which one posits the other and, 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 and completes, uh, completes uh, the other. Uh, and this, I think, historically has been very important for me because to the degree that I'm interested in physical infrastructures and building railways and regional economies and urbanization and so on, you're looking at uh, an area in which there's a great deal of absorption of surplus capital and surplus population uh, through the creation of cities and the creation of urbanization. Uh, And at the same time, the question arises, is that urbanization going to be productive in the sense that it's going to improve the productivity of labor so that more and more surplus labor is going to be available and is it producing more and more goods? so that all these goods can, can, can enter in. So Marx sets this up, which is, I think, a very nice little way on page 707 to talk about the relationship between fixed and circulating capital and to say they feed off each other. Uh, and how they feed off each other is not very well laid out here, but this is the kind of work that I've certainly been uh, in, in involved in and uh, in using a lot of, uh, of these ideas. But the next step is, on 708, uh, Marx takes up this idea about disposable time. The creation of a large quantity of disposable time, apart from necessary labor time for society generally, etc., etc., the creation of not-labor time appears in the stage of capital, as of of all earlier ones, as not-labor time, free time. But the trouble, of course, it's free time for a few. And one of Marx's political projects is to say there should be free time for everyone. But uh, we see uh, what's coming out of this already by the fact that certain groups in the population have a certain amount of free time. Uh, then Then he says, it is thus, despite itself, instrumental in creating the means of social disposable time in order to reduce labor time for the whole society to a diminishing minimum and thus to free everyone's time for their own development. So there is, therefore, this tendency always within the capitalist dynamic to create disposable time. But uh, he then says, on the other hand, it also has a habit of converting that disposable time into surplus labor. So that the surplus labor then can actually create uh, even more, value for the capitalist class. And this is the kind of issue that the, what is there, that on the one hand, capital is creating these possibilities for the emancipation of working people uh, everywhere in terms of freeing up time and freeing up all these things. On the other hand, what it's doing is it's shutting down on that potentiality by actually appropriating the possibility of free time and turning it into surplus labor which is going to, of course, make the rich richer and and the poor relatively poorer. Um, But he he then, then says, at the bottom of 708, real wealth is the developed productive power of all individuals. And it's that developed productive power which is going to be assured by uh, the deployment of fixed capital. Then he says the measure of wealth is then not any longer in any way labour time. Remember, socially necessary labour time is the measure of wealth, but rather he says disposable time. Labour time as the measure of value posits wealth itself as founded on poverty. Remember that because you know wealth. Is, is, is founded on poverty because, uh, because wealth is about surplus value being created and surplus value being extracted. And that surplus value is stuck at the expense of the laborer, and the laborer gets poorer and poorer, and the rich get richer and richer. Okay. Um, so labor time is the measure of value, posits wealth as founded on poverty. And disposable time as existing in and because of the antithesis to surplus labor time or the positing of an individual's entire time as labor time is degradation therefore to mere worker subsumption under labor. The most developed machinery thus forces the worker to work longer than the savage does or than he himself himself did with the simplest crudest tools. So this class relation, which is, is on, the, on the one hand, is producing the potentiality of a free time for everyone at the same time as it is getting into this. And to the degree that the, the, uh, the capitalist class is in control of the fixed capital, the fixed capital is going to be produced and utilized in such a way uh, as to augment the power of capital not to create disposable time for the mass of the population. This is, if you like, the political problem, which Marx is try- striving to address. And I think what he wants to do is he wants us to recognize this problem and, and, and articulate this problem and say to people so that everybody understands and knows that this is actually what the nature of the situation is, that uh, we have the capacity right now to have disposable time for everyone but we're not using it because the class relation is turning it the other way around, it's in turning machines into infernal machines that absolutely absorb more and more of, of the labor. Uh, and this is, this is uh, then on the next page, he points about to something else, which I think is, is, is significant, which is he starts to talk about social labor. Um, and the social intellect, and he talked about the general intellect, we starts to talk about social labour. And the point of this is that he quotes from somebody and says this, there is nothing on which the labourer conceives to say, this is my produce, this I will keep to myself. That is when you have a, a very centralised factory system, and you're just a cog in this kind of wheel, there's nothing there that you can say, that belongs to me. You just do your part in the thing. So it's the, the construction of, of what Marx elsewhere calls the collective labor, social labor, which actually then denies the capacity of the individual to say, well, okay, I can take my produce and I can go off and I can do something different with it. You can't do that because you are just assigned a slot in the division of labor and you have to sort of do what is required of that slot and, and you don't have any autonomy in relationship uh, to what it is that you're, you're producing. In fact, you may not even know very well what you're producing. If you have big supply chains all over the world, uh, you have, may have no idea uh, what happens to the product uh, once it leaves uh, the factory and it may goes to another factory and then to another factory. So Marx is talking here and saying, well, this is made politically more difficult because the worker cannot recognize what their positionality is in relationship to a particular commodity product and how much of that pro- product uh, belongs to them. But this comes out from the, the way in which machine uh, technology uh, and, and factory system is set up in such a way uh, as to de-individualize uh, what labor is about and start to construct what elsewhere calls collective labor, but here calls uh, social labor. Um, so this is this is this is w- one of the features of fixed capital. But then he starts to sort of talk about other things that go on in terms of fixed capital, how why it is and how it is that 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 uh, productive capacity is diverted from circulating capital into the creation of fixed capital, and he has. Again, something which is, I think, rather interesting observation about this, on 7.10. When he says that everything he said tends to get organized towards the production of the means of value creation. Uh, but this is not towards value as an immediate object, but rather towards value creation, towards the means of realization as an immediate object of production. The production of value posited physically in the object of production itself as the aim of production, um, This is a little complicated. But basically what, what, what he's starting to say here is that the flow of capital from circulating into fixed capital, you would think that flow would be kind of rational and, uh, and about trying to enhance productivity in the way that I've suggested But what he's suggesting here is that actually some of that flow becomes an end in itself, that people just want to create the fixed capital and to hell with whether it uh, actually increases productivity or not. So the big issue or one of the big issues that arises, and again, in my own work, I've encountered this a lot, one one of the issues that arises is to what degree is the flow of capital from circulating to fixed? actually flowing into mega projects which uh, don't actually do anything whatsoever to enhance uh, productivity. Uh, we jokingly sometimes say of uh, you know presidents and mayors and things that they have quote edifice complexes that is they want they want to create a mega project that has their name on it no matter whether the mega project makes any sense or not or whether it contributes to and in fact, you, you, what you will see in urbanisation is mega project after mega project after mega project, and you know, have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, with uh, improving the productivity of uh, labour in society in general or liberating free time. What they're really about is absorbing the surpluses of capital and the surpluses of labour in the production of I don't know some big sports stadium or some convention centre or you, you know whatever it is or or or, or just some you know, some large buildings or something of that of that of, of that kind. So that a lot of the flow that goes into quote fixed capital is not actually going into fixed capital in the sense that it, this that it's going to improve the level of capital. It's absorbing surpluses of capital and labor in long-term projects, which may or may not actually uh, have some impact on the the the, the, uh, the productivity of labor. And this, this would, in, in practice, it turns out that a lot of the projects are sort of uh, ambivalent about uh, about that. I mean, somebody will kind of say, "Oh, we need to develop a new port facility," and so a vast amount of money goes into building this new port facility, and you know, maybe it's used a little bit, maybe it does help a little bit in terms of uh, speeding up uh, the, the transfer of goods and services, but uh, a lot of the time, it really doesn't do that. On the other hand, but it could be a big project and it can be a a howling success and a vast amount of money will come through and it will improve the productivity. So the productivity of these long-term projects, of course, is something which is only going to be known way down the line. Uh, Just for an example, uh, the Interstate Highway Project in the United States in the 1950s, 1960s, it, it was never set up to improve productivity, it was set up for security reasons, national security, uh, and and uh, that was its. Uh, so a lot of money was put into that. It, I think it's generally accepted now that it, uh, that 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 money was not wasted. It was it was it actually uh, created uh, uh, increased and improved the productivity of the U.S. economy, partly by annihilating space through time and and and. and you know, those sorts of things. But there are many projects that are not like that. There are famous com- commentaries about people who build bridges to nowhere, and uh, uh, big mega projects which, uh, to which nobody comes. So. But Marx is kind of clear about this in this little passage here, when he kind of says, uh, fix capital. Uh, it cannot happen that capital posits itself as end in itself. Uh, and it does this to a higher power than it does in the production of circulating capital. That is, if you've got a mass of surpluses of, of capital and labor in circulating capital, getting, finding ways to absorb them in these massive kind of projects uh, isn't there in circulating capital. It happens to be there in fixed capital, so you'll start to see flows of uh, value going from what I call the primary circuit of capital, which is circulating capital, to what I would call the secondary circuit of capital, which is the investment in the built environment, investment in long-term structures and so on, as well as investment in machinery and, uh, and factories and, and all the rest of it. Um, there is then a kind of question of the durability, uh, which is paid up, laid out on 7.10. Uh, and uh, the durability of, of, of how, how, how long does the investment last? Uh, I mean, you build a railroad, how long does a, a railroad last? Well, it can last uh, with no goodly number of years. So the durability, and Marx points out here, this is partly a matter of the physicality, so that you can build a product with the kind of materials that don't uh, decay or, or last. A very long time so you, you have that but it's not only durability which is given by physicality it's also by uh, the social meaning and how long it's going to take you to get back the money uh, which you, you've put in uh, by the way in terms of uh, getting the money back and how that operates recall all of these passages about the building of a road earlier on where it goes Marx goes into some detail of okay, you build a road, this is, this is this is a form of fixed capital. It's, and here he's saying, you take money out of uh, circulating capital to build the road. Uh, how do you recuperate the money that you put into the road so you can put it back into the, you know, how, 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 do you, how do you do all of that? What's the role of the state? Who builds the road? How, how are these infrastructures set up and, 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 and the like? Um, and the durability. Uh, is uh, a, a, a serious, serious kind of question, and he he raises that issue up here. Uh, but then also uh, makes another kind of uh, uses another term, which he's used in various points. But I want to draw attention to it because uh, again, if you want to develop these arguments here, then you, these are the sorts of terms you have to be prepared to sort of uh, expand and kind of say, well, what works this term about? he starts to talk about something called the Consumption Fund. Now, the Consumption Fund is the equivalent of fixed capital, but it's an equivalent which exists on, for consumption. That is, when we go out and consume things, there are infrastructures there, physical infrastructure. We go to a park, and, there's, you know, and the park is being built, and there's roadways, and there's swings, and you know, uh, baseball, Pitches and things like that. So the park has been uh, has been uh, built up, but it's not it's not for production. Uh, so a lot of these these uh, investments in the built environment, for example, are actually there for direct consumption, like a uh, uh, park or, or, or uh, most classically, a house. Uh, the house uh, is. Uh, As Marx will point out, in here is a form of uh, circulating capital for the person who builds the house. But when the house is sold, uh, it's then sold uh, into the consumption fund, unless somebody comes along and buys the house in order to set up a sweatshop, in which case the house is part of fixed capital. But most houses are going to be built as part, uh, and they're long term. Uh, and and therefore the consume the, the consumption process uh, has a certain duration. The consumption process of a house is you know thirty, forty years, maybe fifty years, sixty years, even a hundred years. So so the house therefore is part of the consumption fund, uh, and it can be switched into as as we've mentioned many before. The use of things is important. So a house can switch from being in the consumption fund to being in in uh, fixed capital, and it can switch back again. So that uh, those factories, which uh, were uh, textile factories, which had been turned into condominiums, have switched from the fixed capital category into the consumption fund category. So Marx sets up here and says, well, the consumption fund is also important. But he says, when we get into that, we have to be aware uh, that uh, this whole thing of consumption fund is connected with further determinations. Renting rather than buying interest, and we're often going to see with fixed capital this kind of question of circulation of interest bearing capital coming into the picture, and also, of course, in relationship to consumption funds, the mortgages and the mortgage business, and so on, is a huge kind of business. But in that area, says Marx, we're going to get renting rather than buying interest, etc. And then he kind of does his classic gesture, which is to say, which we are not yet here to. Concerned. So, you know, that, that's often what Marx does. Um, but he then is, 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 is really uh, pushing very hard on this, uh, this side of, uh, okay, free time, and what goes on with the, the free time, which is created by the superior productivity that comes with the machine technologies and the like. And he says at the bottom of 7-Eleven, the saving of labor time is equal to an increase of free time, i.e. time for the full development of the individual, which in turn reacts back upon the productive power of labor as itself the greatest productive power. Remember, it's free individuals who engage in a lot of the innovating thinking and uh, discovery and science and technology and technology. Alike. From a standpoint of the direct production process, it could be regarded as the production of fixed capital. This fixed capital being man himself. Now he's stretching things a bit when he kind of says that uh, you and I are examples of fixed uh, capital. But, you know, after all, uh, Bourdieu and people like that talk about uh, you know, human capital and uh, there's a whole kind of theory of human capital, and so uh, Marx is actually very critical of that elsewhere, but here he's kind of, I think, a little bit tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, talking about it, but the whole kind of question about what do people do with free time? Uh, and uh, that it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their free time is inactive. I mean, free time is not simply about you know, sitting down and doing nothing. It can be actually very, very active. And you know, he uh, actually, on 712, kind of mentions Fourier. Now, Fourier was an interesting kind of a character to introduce at this point, because uh, you know, Fourier was kind of saying, well, at a certain point, all labor should be equivalent to play. Uh, and uh, instead of uh, us having to do things and it being a grind, it should be just the matter of play. Marx doesn't agree with that, But he does agree with uh, the idea that uh, free labor time is not necessarily inactive and the kinds of things that Fourier uh, was uh, talking about doing and the kinds of activities that he was advocating uh, were, again, Marx has a certain sympathy with that. But uh, he also recognizes that uh, uh, free labor time is not all just fun. Uh, that we undertake projects, which can be quite hard and, and take a lot of discipline to, 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 to finish. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, what this is about is that, as you said, this process of uh, you know, free, using a free time uh, is then both discipline as regards the human being and the process of becoming, so that if we want to create things and create ourselves, and creating things, we're going to become uh, rather disciplined around projects. Uh, and material creative and objectifying science as regards a human being who has become, in whose head exists the accumulating knowledge of society. That is free time is given over to play, but it's also about discovery. And a lot of the, 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 the discoveries and, and technological innovations that have come about come out from that kind of freewheeling uh, process. Uh, and then Marx kind of says, so if we take all of this and really push it to its extreme, what we, we do is we, we start to find ourselves dealing with the whole kind of production and reproduction of a, a, a particular kind of society and with its social relations. So he ends up kind of saying, We have to look at fixed capital and we have to look at all of these other elements as moments within this process, uh, which are creating the the lineaments of a new society. And he's talked about that uh, earlier, this idea of a new society uh, sort of embedded in the bowels of the old and and having to be extracted somehow or other uh, through these these processes of uh, free play. so then comes a long passage he quotes from Owen, kind of saying, okay, uh, this is, I'm gonna use this somehow. We had no idea how he's gonna use it. Um, but then he's got a, a, a bit of a problem about fixity, uh, um, where he's beginning to say, well, the fixity and uh, of, uh, of the, the fixed capital, uh, has has certain implications, uh, and the fixity gets connected uh, to uh, what I've often referred to as a metabolic relation to nature. Uh, so, is the fixity a fixity on the land, and what's the relationship between creation of infrastructures and landed property? So, if I talk about you know infrastructures and uh, urbanization and so on. How can I talk about that without talking about landed property uh, and uh, landed property, uh, to what degree is that, uh, the place of fixity. Uh, and he talks about uh, the, the, the fixity uh, of, uh, on the land uh, as having some significance and uh, actually says something which I don't think is correct. Uh, As he says, uh, only the form of landed property or of natural agencies as value-determining magnitudes, that is, as a a metabolic relation as value-determining, modified to correspond to capital. Uh, This belongs to the examination of the system of bourgeois economy. It does not affect the examination of capital at the point we have so far reached. That's a very important caveat. To regard land, etc., as a form of fixed capital. Now, it's clear that fixed capital can be placed upon the land. It's clear that fixed capital can be embedded in the land. But I don't think it's a good idea at all to call the land fixed capital. Now, the land is the land, and it's, it, it's commodified, and it has all its characteristics. And from the land, of course, we can extract uh, water, uh, uh, mineral resources, and all the rest of it. But... It's not a good idea, it seems to me, to, to actually start to treat this as a fixed capital. But the fixity of things on the land starts to become important. And one of the themes that Marx enters into here is to say that while circulating capital is moving a lot of the time easily across uh, space and time, Uh, fixed capital is often fixated in the land and on the land, and that therefore is a different relation to the land than circulating capital. And I think the question of what the relationship is of fixed capital to the land is an important question, but I don't think he deals with it at all well here. And we start to recognize uh, the the possibility of what might happen with land rent or what might happen with with, uh, issues of uh, of, of that sort. Uh, uh, So this relationship then between fixed capital formation and the circulation of fixed capital, how slowly the, the value circulates in fixed capital, how fixed capital relates to circulating capital by commodity production, utilizing the instruments of labor over a long period of time. And if you have a machine Uh, that lasts and has a durability of 10 years, then one-tenth of the value of the machine moves into the product, but there is no material movement from the the machine into the product. The machine is the machine, and you're just transferring one-tenth of its value into the value of the commodity produced with the help of the machine on the the assumption of a durability. Uh, So, and this then gets into the whole kind of question of temporality and how we think about temporality. Uh, When he was talking about circulating capital, uh, he basically said, well, we have to deal with the fact that there are different turnover times of capital, uh, but we're going to actually lock it down uh, by saying there is a basic turnover time, and the basic turnover time uh, is that, which is given by agriculture, which in Marx's time, of course, was very much more central. Uh, it's given by agriculture and the temporality is, uh, for most of the parts of the world that Marx was working in, is one year. Uh, there's harvest once a year and, and therefore, the basic the baseline of temporality is one year. Uh, fixed capital is defined as something that lasts for longer than one year and can take you through many ser- cycles of, of circulating capital. Now. Circulating capital, as we've seen earlier, can circulate once a year if you're in agriculture. Others can circulate on a daily basis. So there's lots of different ways in which. But it's all kind of measured on the basis of this year. Uh, But that can't be the temporality of fixed capital. Because with fixed capital, you're you're dealing with a much different kind of temporality. so he says, the introduction of fixed capital, he said, changes our notion of temporality, uh, and, and neither the turnover time of capital nor the unit in which their number is measured for the year henceforth appear as a measure of time for the motion of capital. This unit is now determined, rather, by the reproduction time required for fixed capital. And hence the total circulation time it needs to enter into circulation as value and to come back from it in the totality of its value. Now, what he's envisaging here is that, you know, I'll use the 10-year machine, uh, is I said, well, if if you have machines and the machines are sort of basically all going to last 10 years, then you've got a 10-year time horizon. Uh, and the temporality is going to be fixed by by, uh, a 10-year cycle. the end of 10 years, uh, you're going to have to replace your machine. Uh, And uh, this then becomes rather significant for the rhythms of capital. So capital no longer is kind of being affected by the daily kind of rhythm of circulating capital or the monthly rhythm or the annual rhythm of circulating capital it's going to be uh, measured against this uh, 10-year life expectancy of the uh, machines which are being deployed. Now this is a very simplistic way of looking at it but it has some meaning because he says uh, according to Babbage the average reproduction of machinery in English, Babbage was a kind of a analyst of uh, industrial structures, and Marx draws upon him quite a lot. Uh, The average reproduction of machinery in England is five years. And then Marx says, the real one, hence perhaps 10 years. There can be no doubt whatever that the cycle which has passed through since the development of fixed capital on a large scale at more or less 10 year intervals is connected with this total reproduction phase of capital. That is, he's saying there's going to be waves of capital reinvestment, and it's going to be a 10-year cycle. And he says that because, actually, if you go back and you look at the data, you see a 10-year cycle in nearly all the data. For instance, there was a crisis in 1826. There was a crisis in 1836. There was a crisis in 1847-8. to eight, And there was a crisis in 1857-8, to eight, which is when Marx was writing the Grundrisse. So you basically see a 10-year crisis. And when you look at the graphs, they all have this kind of 10-year rhythm, and you kind of go, actually, this is the equivalent of a business cycle. And the business cycle is likely to be governed by waves of reinvestment, uh, which sometimes was reinvestment in similar machines, but sometimes with waves of reinvestment in new machines, in which case, even though your old machine was still working fine, you would have to get rid of it because uh, it was nowhere near as productive as the new machines on the market. So, so the, the, the temporality then sets in. Uh, so, so this this temporality uh, and the temporality of fixed capital circulation is very different from the temporality of, uh, of circulating capital. And then we have to sort of say, well, within the totality of a capitalist society, what's the relationship going on between circulating capital and the totality uh, of uh, what's going on in the cycles of fixed capital formation and, and, and the like. So this, is a, this, is, this, this, this actually raises some interesting questions. And so when you look at uh, some of the graphs of uh, reinvestment and so on, you, you find, particularly in the 19th century, these 10-year cycles, and we sometimes call them business cycles, or we call them. So Marx is kind of saying, well, you know, when you get to fixed capital formation, you're likely to see waves of uh, of fixed capital formation, and the waves are going gener- to going to you know, lead to a kind of cyclical kind of boom and slump uh, kind of process. There'll be a boom, and, and then this connects also, he says, uh, uh, with 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 uh, another issue which is which is very important, but which he doesn't really go into. When he says, "What well, the economists here understand, and this is on page 723, by fixed capital is, as far as revenue use from it are concerned, the form of fixed capital in which it does not directly enter into the production process as machinery, but rather in railways, buildings, agricultural improvements, drainings, etc., where hence the realization of the value and surplus value contained in surplus value." Uh, um, sorry, Uh, the realization of the value and surplus value contained in it appears in the form of an annuity where interest represents the surplus value and the annuity, the successive return of the value advanced. This is therefore not in fact a case, although it is this case with agricultural improvements of fixed capital entering into circulation as value by forming a part of the product, but rather the sale of fixed capital in the form of its use value. It is here sold not all at once, but as an annuity. Um, So that the machine uh, and and the fixed capital may itself circulate, and it can circulate in two ways. It can circulate uh, in in relationship to interest-bearing capital. Uh, That is that the the buyer of the fixed capital uh, will... In, in effect, uh, borrow the fixed capital and pay interest on it for the, the 10 years in which that fixed capital is deployed. Uh, this is the way uh, that a lot of contracts are set up. I mean, if you have a, a copying machine in your office, you, 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 the office has almost certainly not bought it. Uh, what they've done is they've actually uh, leased it on a 10-year probably service contract of some kind in which the fixed capital will be taken away after 10 years and something else will come come in. But in order to do this, you have to have some notion of interest. And therefore, what is happening there is it's not actually circulating in relationship to surplus value. It's uh, circulating in relationship to uh, interest bearing capital. Again, Marx doesn't want to deal with that here and says this is too kind of thing. This is too complicated for us here. Uh, but this is likewise even, he says, with houses. Uh, and in this case, uh, we're dealing with something else. And he starts now to actually uh, talk about fixed capital of an independent kind uh, and starts to distinguish uh, between uh, independent, the independent form of fixed capital and the movable and Im- immovable forms, in other words, once you get into fixed capital, you're getting into, getting into different forms of fixed capital and the different forms have different rules of circulation. So it's not as if it's just simply about fixed capital, it's about fixed capital, different forms. For example, uh, most firms were gonna use uh, forklift trucks. Uh, most firms uh, will rent them rather than buy them uh, and rent them on an annual basis, and have an annual contract, or a biannual contract, or a five-year contract, or something of that kind. So, uh, in this case, in this case, uh, the the forklift truck is produced, but it's not produced uh, as part of surplus value creation. It's really produced to earn interest on the capital. So that instead of instead of you, you, the banker can lend money to the To the industrialist to buy the forklift truck, or the industrialist can pay interest to the owner of the forklift truck, who will then, you know, get interest on 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 how much it 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 took to buy uh, the forklift truck. So you have two ways of going, and and uh, one is uh, in which you own uh, the fixed capital, and the other by which. But when you, you, when, when you go away from machinery and, and the relationship between circulating and fixed capital in, in, in the firm, and start to say, well, okay, what goes on in terms of all these infrastructures like housing and the consumption fund? What goes on uh, in uh, uh, you know, railways and roads and all those kinds of things, and sewers and, and, and waste disposal structures and so on? What goes on in all those areas? Uh, you're dealing with something which is, which again, which is radically different. Where it's the circulation of interest-bearing capital which takes over and starts to manage the whole way in which uh, items of that kind are distributed in the economy. So Marx is very well aware of this and starts to kind of say, okay, fixed capital is a very complicated uh, 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 category, and 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 as such, uh, uh, you have to. Uh, recognize its complexities uh, and, and, uh, and, and at the same time always remember that though these are distinctive forms of circulation, these distinctive forms of circulation uh, actually enter into a uh, particular kind of relationship with circulating capital so you've got to you know it's just a pretty complicated kind of world that marx is, is is looking at here on the one hand you've got to keep a relationship with circulating capital right but on the other hand you've got to have the different forms of circulation and how do they have fixed capital and at the same time what is fixed capital doing in terms of uh, enhancing the productivity uh, of labor and what are the consequences uh, uh, the increasing productivity of labor, which which fixed capital should uh, set up uh, through its operation. Marx sort of quotes on 728, for example, uh, uh, that, that, uh, an adage from Adam Smith, that every fixed capital comes originally from a circulating capital and needs to be continually maintained by means of a circulating capital. Uh, and then he says at the bottom, uh, again, this is Smithian, but it uses this concept, uh, which i always coming back to here. The more the material presence of fixed capo- capital corresponds to its concept, the more adequate its material mode of existence is, the more does its turnover time span a cycle of years. Um, and And so... Again, we have this idea that uh, Marx is trying to figure out what the full role of fixed capital might be in a a capitalist mode of production, Um, but part of his argument here is to sort of try to define what forms of circulation of fixed capital and what volumes of flow from circulating to fixed capital might be adequate to capital. Uh, we don't know exactly what that would be, but on the other hand, the question is significant, and and, and as a as a as an important question, we we need we need I think to uh, to, to follow it uh, through. Now, I've mentioned this uh, argument. Of, uh, about uh, fixed capital connecting to circulation of interest bearing capital. And Marx doesn't want to deal with that here. Uh, it's not as if he doesn't want to deal with it full stop. Uh, clearly from his other writings, he, he found this a very significant uh, issue. Um, but he does say something about it, which I think is, a, is, a very, is, a very, is very critical. Uh, and he's been talking about the, the forms of payment which go on in terms of uh, circulation of uh, fixed capital and how uh, the, the value of that fixed capital is recuperated by these different kind of means and structures of uh, payment. Uh, and, and he says at the bottom of 731, something interesting, it is paid for only in proportion to its wear. This much clearer then, which already follows from the difference introduced by a fixed capital into the industrial cycle, that's the 10 year cycle, namely that it engages the production of subsequent years. And just as it contributes to the creation of a large revenue, it anticipates further labor as a counter value. The anticipation of future fruits of labor is therefore in no way a consequence of the state debt, etc. In short, not an invention of the credit system. It has its roots in the specific mode of realization, mode of turnover, mode of reproduction of fixed capital. I think it's a very important rule. Okay. When we, when we start to look at uh, interest-bearing capital and finance capital and all other things that have gone on with that, The tendency is to say, oh, well, we've seen a financialization or financial something's happened to the financial system, blah, blah, blah. Marx is saying, you're looking in the wrong place. If you want to understand that, you go look at fixed capital formation. I mean, you don't go look at the mortgage market just because you want to look at the mortgage market. You go and look at house building. If If you want to look at, what's happening in the credit system in China. You just don't kind of say, wow, the Chinese have really gone off and got into the credit system and a huge amount of uh, uh, indebtedness, all this kind of thing. You don't do that. You say, okay, what, what is that money being lent for and why is it being lent? And the answer was, of course, that the Chinese, when faced with a crisis in 2007, 2008, decided to absorb surplus capital and labor Notice I'm coming back to that again surplus capital and labor in building long term fixed capital assets, railroads, dams, uh, housing, all the rest of it. So they needed to get they got indebted not because they got indebted but because they were building a vast amount of fixed capital formation and the fixed capital was only going to return any. Uh, you know, return, return any profit on, on its, on its uh, building after several years. Therefore, uh, you had to find a way. So the relationship between circulating capital and fixed capital, that relationship is mediated through the credit system. And That is, the credit system just didn't sort of descend from heaven. The credit system grew. At this point, the relationship between circulating capital and fixed capital, it's important to remember that because then you don't say, oh, we've got to reform the credit system or we've got to get rid of the credit because to get rid of the credit is to get rid of the way in which the future has been set up through fixed capital investments in railroads and all the rest of it. So again, one of the things I always like about the Grundrisse is that Marx can be sort of toddling along dealing with kind of minor issues. And then he'll come up with a sentence like that, which is really, really pregnant with a lot of meaning and and very significant, I think, to understand. So that when I think about uh, what's going on in finance capital, I'm always thinking about, well, what is it that finance capital is financing? And why is it that the kind of investments which are going on are such as to absolutely need sometimes completely new instruments, uh, financial instruments? For example, we, in, in the United States, uh, we're used to the idea of a 30-year mortgage. Where did the 30-year mortgage come from? When, when, well, you know, did somebody think, oh, it's would be a good idea to have a 30-year mortgage? No. It came in the Great Depression when there was a kind of real need to try to ginger up house building and home building and all the rest of it. But in order to do that, there had to be a market. For the houses that you built, and to order have the market, you had to kind of create new financial instruments. And that therefore, the creation of new financial instruments uh, paralleled uh, this push uh, to build. Now, I, I discovered this was, was very much the case. First time I discovered this, really, well, I mean, I sort of knew it about the mortgage housing in the United States, but another place I discovered it was in Second Empire Paris. In Second Empire Paris, there was a crisis, 1847-48. They were trying to get out of the crisis. By 1852, they were finding new ways to get out of it. And one of the ways to get out of it was Hausmann came in and uh, Napoleon basically said to him, rebuild the city. But in order to rebuild the city, they had to invent new financial institutions. And they went to the Saint-Simonians and uh, uh, very much about associations of capital. And they said, okay, build new financial institutions. So they built the Credit de and the Credit Mobilier and all those kinds of new institutions. But they built them for a purpose. And they built them because they needed to absorb surplus capital and labor in the rebuilding of Paris. And they couldn't do it without creating these new financial institutions. And here's Marx kind of saying, well, you know, If you want to understand anything about financial institutions, you've got to understand the material origins of the financial institutions and those material origins come from this this particular kind of of world. So this is something which is, I think, uh, very uh, interesting uh, to look at. Um... but then this creates a, a, another set of uh, kind, kind, kind of uh, questions. Um, which I think that uh, I would like to is, I, I've mentioned that the categories of fixed capital and I think it's important to remember this. First off, there's you know okay, just fixed capital and circulating capital, and the relationship between the two. There is then fixed capital, which is fixed capital of an independent kind, which is uh, the infrastructures which uh, capitalists utilise, and and uh, consumers utilise. So so the 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 independent kind of fixed capital formation is, has a very different logic to it uh, relative to the, uh, the, the firm who's just, uh, you know, buying a machine and you know, setting up a machine uh, structure. So that's, uh, that's important. Um, then there is the, uh, the movable and the immovable stuff of an independent kind. Which is a, the the distinction is is important uh, because you can't move uh, a, a road. I mean, there's your immovable. Uh, on the other hand, you can sell shares to say a, a toll road, uh, and and uh, they can go so so so. Uh, You can't, it's well, you can move a house just about every now and again, it's done, but by and large, you have a lot of immovable uh, fixed capital around and movable. The airport is immovable, Uh, the airplanes that fly there are movable, the road is immovable, the cars that drive on the road are again, but then there's a question of what's the relationship between the immovable and the movable. What's the relationship between fixed capital of an independent kind and the other forms of fixed capital circulation? So we've got a lot of complexities here that Marx is, is laying out, and I think uh, those complexities are, are important to keep, uh, um, keep keep in mind when we're dealing with uh, fixed capital. And, and as I suggested, uh, the... Um, the the whole kind of question of fixed capital here in in the Grundrisse is is far more uh, articulated than than it is elsewhere in Marx. And for me, anyway, it's always been uh, tremendously significant uh, stuff. Okay, so I'm going to go on now to um, the next issue, which is a follow-on to a study of the effects of fixed capital formation on uh, surplus value production and the the dynamics of uh, capital accumulation in general. Now, we've already seen that there's a challenge to the value theory, there's a challenge to, you know, employment structures through fixed capital formation and... uh, the mobilization of uh, uh, science and technology as a business and, and all that that means is, is, uh, is significant. Um, so in the next section, uh, we start to get into uh, another, another topic and we're not going to finish this, but we, we're going to bro- broach it. Uh, and that is, uh, so on page 745, Marx starts out by saying, capital is now posited as the unity of production and circulation. I'm always coming back to this. There's this tendency in in Marxist circles always to kind of go on about production, uh, but uh, actually what I'm really looking at here is production and circulation. That's the unity of production and circulation and how production is embedded in circulation and circulation. course, uh, relates uh, to production, and in particular, of course, circulation produces the surpluses which allow fixed capital to go into production, you know, all of those kinds of things, which you find with Marx that this affects this, and then this goes there, and that, that does something else. So capital is now posited as the unity of production and circulation. Capital is now realized not only as value which reproduces itself, and we've gone through that in previous sections, and is hence perennial but also as value, which posits value, that is value which is being used to create uh, more value. And then he talks a little bit about uh, this uh, as uh, the turnover time that's involved, and the significance of uh, circulation, and the movement of capital outside the immediate production process, within the reproduction process. And then he goes on to say, surplus value appears no longer to be positive by its simple direct relation to living labor. This relation appears rather as merely a moment of its total movement proceeding from itself as the active subject, the subject to the process. And in the turnover, the direct production process indeed appears determined by its movement as capital, independent of its relation to labor. Capital relates to itself as self-increasing value. Now, you remember this discussion about the circulation of the the small-scale, what Marx called the small-scale circulation, which was the circulation of labor. That is, labor goes to the factory, offers their labor power to the factory owner. The factory owner says, thank you very much. The end of the day, pays them a wage. They take their wage and they trot off to the store and they buy commodities and they take it back uh, to the household so everybody can eat and then that reproduces themselves. So the circulation, there's that circulation process. There's the the mega-circulation process that I'm always looking at, and now we're talking about all of these different circulation processes which are connected to fixed capital formation and all the rest of it. And the interesting thing is to say, well, within the sense of the totality, and always come back to that idea of the totality, within the sense of the totality, what is going on in terms of the inner relationships of all of those different circulatory forms and how are they relating to each other? And when Marx kind of says, look, capital at some point or other becomes about valorizing itself, and it doesn't even care about labor. Well, it doesn't care about labor in the sense that it doesn't care about what it is that the laborer has to do in order to reproduce themselves. And, and that therefore the reproduction of labor power has nothing to do with capital. Capital washes its hands of it. It says, all we want is this person turning up at the factory gate and saying, okay, I'm going to give you a day's labor uh, in return for a wage. That's all I'm interested in. And it's at that point, of course, that labor relates to uh, the production of value and surplus value, uh, but it's not, it's not the laborer who is relating to it, because basically what's given up is alienated labor. That is, uh, it's not, you know. So, so this is the, the situation we're in. And, and, but then Marx kind of starts to say, all right, so how does capital circulate in, in terms of its own dynamic of value-producing value. Producing value. How, how, what, what, are the, what are the laws of its own form of circulation? And he says, so capital relates to itself as self-increasing value, i.e. it relates to surplus value as something positive and founded by it. It relates as wellspring of production to itself as product. It relates as producing value to itself as produced value. It therefore for, no longer measures the newly produced value by its real measure. Now, this is, again, coming back to the fact that the, the, the value theory is not, is not working. Uh, the relation of surplus labor to necessary labor, but rather by itself as its presupposition. A capital of a certain value produces, in a certain period of time, a certain surplus value. Surplus value, thus measured by the value of the presupposed capital, capital thus posited as self-realizing value, is profit, not regarded subspecie eternitas, that is, universal truth, but subspecie capitalis, that is, the truth of capital. So the surplus value is profit. The magnitude, surplus value, is therefore measured by the value magnitude of the capital and the rate of profit is therefore determined by the proportion between its value and the value of capital. The rate of profit is very, very different from the rate of surplus value. The rate of profit is going to be affected very much by the total amount of capital advanced. And if the capital advanced is heavily dependent upon massive amounts of fixed capital and massive amounts of uh, uh, means of production in general, and very little labor, then that firm is going to produce very little surplus value because even if the rate of exploitation is 100%, if you're only employing 20 laborers, then there's not much surplus value being generated. But you're going to get a rate of profit. And the rate of profit, and we've gone into this before, is going to be different depending upon the capital intensity, how much fixed capital. So the deployment of fixed capital is going to have a very significant effect upon the relationship between the production of surplus value, which is one measure, and the rate of profit, which is another measure. And the move from circulating capital to uh, fixed capital is a move from surplus value-producing capital to capital-intensive capital. And Marx then goes through this and says the following, the magnitude surplus value is therefore measured by the value magnitude of the capital and the rate of profit is therefore determined by the proportion between its value and the value of capital—that is, the total amount of value of, of capital advanced into the production process—a very large part of what belongs here has been developed above. We've done this to some degree already, but the anticipated material is to be put here, in so far as the newly posited value, which is of the same nature as the capital, is itself in turn taken up into the production process itself in turn maintains itself as capital. To that extent, the capital itself has grown and now acts as a capital of greater value. After it has distinguished the profit as newly reproduced value from itself as presupposed self-realizing value and has posited profit as the measure of its realization, it suspends the separation again and posits it in its identity to itself as capital which grown by the amount of the profit, now begins the same process anew in larger dimensions. By describing its circle, it expands itself as a subject of the circle and thus describes a self-expanding circle, a spiral. Now those of you who've listened to me will know I spent a lot of time talking about the spiral and how you have to analyze that diagram Which depicts a circle, and you have to sort of imagine it as a spiral, and it's a spiral which is about constant growth. And then Marx says this: that the impact of greater levels of fixed capital in the production process increase the total value, total capital advance. But decrease the total value produced. The result is that presupposing the same surplus value, the same surplus labor in proportion to necessary labor, then the rate of profit depends on the relation between the part of capital exchanged for living labor and the part existing in the form of raw material and means of production. Hence, the smaller the portion exchanged for living labor becomes, the smaller becomes the rate of profit. Thus, in the same proportion as capital takes up a larger place as capital in the production process relative to immediate labor, i.e., the more the relative surplus value grows, the value creating power of capital, the more does the rate of profit fall. So, okay, here it comes the falling rate of profit. Fixed capital and the increasing reliance upon fixed capital is going to produce a falling rate of profit because the the ratio between capital advanced and labor employed is going to favor those firms which have a high high level of, of fixed capital. So the equalization of the rate of profit then is going to have this effect. The equalization is going to to produce a falling rate of profit in aggregate because more and more of the value is going to go into investment in fixed capital. So Marx kind of says, hence the rate of profit falls relative to the total value of the capital presupposed to production of the part of capital acting as capital in production. Presupposing equal surplus value, equal relation of surplus labor and necessary labor, there can therefore be an unequal profit, and it must be unequal relative to the size of the capitals. The rate of profit can rise, although real surplus value falls. Indeed, the capital can grow, and the rate of profit can grow in the same relation to the relation, and, and so on. This equality of rates, that is the equalization of the rate of profit, presupposes growth of the capital without growth and development of the productive power of labor. One presupposition suspends the other. This contradiction, this contradicts the law of development of capital, and especially the development of fixed capital. So the development of fixed capital, then, is connected to the foreign rate of profit. And the more capital moves towards the falling rate of profit, towards fixed capital, the more it's going to move towards the falling rate of profit. And this is across the board. Thus, he says on page 748, expressed in general terms, if the rate of profit declines, the larger capital, but not in relation with its size, then the gross profit rises, although the rate of profit declines. His example here is an obvious one. Uh, If the rate of profit of the capital of 1,000 were only half a percent, then the sum of its profit would be only half as large as that of the smaller capital because the rate of profit will be 20 times smaller. In other words, a capital of 100 with a profit of 10% yields a smaller sum of profit than a capital of 1,000 with a profit of 2%. So what's happening to the profit rates is powerfully connected to the rise of fixed capital. As an object of dynamics of the capitalist system. And he then goes on to say this is in every respect the most important law of modern political economy and the most essential for understanding the most difficult relations. Now, this is very important statement, he's he's kind of saying that the falling rate of profit, this law of falling rate of profit due to increasing deployment of fixed capital, uh, is the most important law of modern political economy and most essential for understanding the most difficult relations. Now, this argument about the falling rate of profit uh, obviously has a long, long history and of course it's taken up more fully in Volume 3 of Capital. But it's interesting that Marx has articulated that here and in some ways it, 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 it's following on from all of this analysis of fixed capital. And I think that is significant because in the same way that I kind of go, look, you can't understand." Uh, Contemporary stuff about finance and credit uh, without understanding uh, how finance and credit is demanded and created uh, by this push towards more and more fixed capital investment. And in the same way, I would argue about this and you can't understand the falling rate of profit argument without understanding why it is. And this is what Marx has been analysing, of course, why it is that capital is constantly pushing towards innovation. And that has to do, of course, with certain features of a capitalist uh, economy. And perhaps uh, I will here take one of the features, which which is... which is significant. And that is the role of competition in this. And he says in this section on 752, he says, competition can permanently depress the rate of profit in all branches of industry, i.e. the average rate of profit, only if and insofar as a general and permanent fall of the rate of profit, having the force of law, is conceivable prior to competition and regardless of competition. Here we go, competition executes the inner laws of capital, makes them into compulsory laws towards the individual capital, but it does not invent them. It realizes them. Now, there are a couple of reasons why I would want to take up this question of competition here. To to begin with, there is a view, uh, a very general kind of view the competition is uh, a central feature to the dynamics of capital accumulation. And I think that this raises some interesting kind of questions because Marx is basically saying competition really is not going to explain anything. Competition enforces certain things. And in exactly the same way that the falling rate of profit comes out of this kind of why it is that capital is constantly looking for innovations and the the like, and for, for some falling rate of profit and all those other questions come out of that, then what we have to do is to recognize that competition is not the issue. There's a tendency to say, uh, you know, socialism is all about uh, collaboration and collective, collective action. And capitalism is all about competition and individual liberty and freedom. And competition and individual liberty and freedom are depicted as being somehow or other eternal truths. Somehow or other, they're natural. So by that calculus, that would then mean that anybody who goes for the socialist answer is actually pursuing something that is, quote, unnatural. So this kind of... Actually, there's a long history of this, so you'd be surprised. I mean, casually, you know, people say will say things like, oh, well, you're a socialist. You don't believe in competition. Competition is human nature. You can't curb competition, therefore, there's no point you... you know. I- I'm sure anybody you have heard those kinds of arguments. This is not Marx's arguments at all, and it goes back to the analysis that the, we've already been given, which is kind of fantastic analysis when you think of it. I mean, if the competition is over, how much disposable time we have? Well, we end up with a very different society than competition over who can acquire the greatest amount of wealth and, in, in, as measured in terms of money, power, and Control over assets. So everything depends upon what the competition is about. I mean, if we all competed on who could have the best healthcare service, who could have the best defense against, uh, you know, uh, epidemics and all the rest of it, then, then you know, I mean, as far as Marx is concerned, competition is fine. So it's not as if socialism is about you know abandonment of competition. It's about competing over certain things but not about others, and the question Marx is kind of saying here is that you can't get anywhere by starting a competition because it's a meaningless phrase, it depends what you're competing about. Now what capital does is to compete, as we've seen, is to compete over technological change. And it competes over technological change for a very simple kind of reason, that you're trying to maximize the rate of profit. That's what it's about. If you maximize the rate of profit, then you're competing with others to do it. One of the ways you can do it is to have superior technology. Therefore, you go for relative surplus value and you go for superior technology. Superior technology uh, means it's going to have fixed capital. It means you're going to start to do all of the things that we've been talking about, and so we're going to end up with a society which is going to, into you know, circulation of interest, bearing capital, doing all of those kinds of things. So we're going to do all of those things, but, we, but competition doesn't explain any of them. So what Marx is doing here is to kind of say, you know, competition is very crucial for understanding how there's an equalization of the rate of profit. One of the ways in which you could get out of uh, this is to diminish competition. And there are a number of ways you can diminish competition, of course. Uh, One of the ways would uh, be if if you have monopolies, Uh, so, you know, uh, another way would be to uh, structure things so that, uh, uh, for example, there was no even capital flow. That capital could not flow to where the rate of profit is highest or lowest, in other words you'd have capital controls. So there are all sorts of ways in which you might address the whole kind of question, but Competition is a very, very important in enforcing the laws. And, and the law of a falling rate of profit is not the result of competition. It is something that is enforced, however, by the existence of competition between firms uh, over the rate of profit and for a higher rate of profit. And if I have a very high rate of profit and you don't, uh, I'm going to drive you out of business within very short order. And with a bit of luck, I'll become a monopolist and won't be bothered by the falling rate of profit either. But that uh, doesn't happen very long. In fact, there are all sorts of mechanisms that lead into uh, even monopolies being challenged at various points. I mean, in the 1960s, uh, there were monopolies in the United States with big companies and they did things a very different way than the breakup of the monopolies since then. So competition then is significant. But competition is not a definition of either the capitalist ethic or, for that matter, what is wrong with the, with the socialist approach. In other words, socialists could be very happy to have lots of competition. Competition over the best uh, healthcare system, competition over uh, life expectancy, competition uh, over free time. And, and, and let, let's have a competition over, you know. Uh, and, and it's inter- interesting, you see, because when you kind of say, well, if, if, we, if we take any of those uh, features and ask the question, is the United States uh, got a better economy? Well, in terms of GDP per capita, it's pretty good, and it's way, way up there. But in terms of uh, protection of the mass of the citizens from uh, penury through... Uh, uh, sort of uh, exorbitant uh, medical bills, uh, the answer would be, well, you know, the US is way, way down. It's even way down now in terms of life expectancy and it's even way down in terms of infant mortality and all kinds of other things. So there are these situations uh, in which the question of competition becomes significant. And I think that, it's, uh, that, that, that the whole role of competition in relationship to the falling rate of profit is significant. now. The falling rate of profit is a big issue and we're going to deal with that next time. So I'm going to stop here and see if there are any immediate kind of, uh, kind of questions that people want to ask or to raise. And then, then, then we can go on next time uh, to take uh, uh, the, the, the next uh, section, which in effect will be to, to really do the rest of the, rest of the book. So let me stop here and let's have a discussion if there are questions that somebody wants to
1: So far, we have no questions. Um, Folks, if you have something you'd like to comment, please use the raise hand function at the bottom of your screen. Hi, hi, Professor Harvey. Hi. Uh, hi, I'm Maitri here. I wanted to ask uh, uh, about these large infrastructure projects and its relation to real estate development. I think we touched upon it briefly, but uh, it seems that you know uh, there is this uh, uh, inflation of property prices when an infrastructure project happens in a particular area. And this is seen in many parts of the world. And it's not a simple, uh, it's not just because there is some access to roads or, you know, there's more access to uh, transport. It seems that, you know, there is a very uh, planned uh, inflation of real estate prices, would you like to comment on
0: that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the topics that uh, Marx mentions, and this, this is why the Grundrisse is so important, is because he's basically saying on a lot of these questions, okay, this is an issue, uh, I'm not going to deal with it here, but uh, you people out there, maybe at one point or other, should go after this. And, and what, you're, what you're talking about is a complicated kind of relationship which exists between... The fact that uh, there are uh, capital surpluses around and uh, a lot of those capital surpluses get invested in real estate development and therefore when you you start to get uh, immobile uh, assets uh, in relationship to mobile capital, uh, you're going to see uh, a good deal of land speculation and speculation in asset values. I mean, right now, I mean, my, my view is, and this is just my particular view, uh, which, which isn't necessarily Marx, is that the, the, the surpluses which exist, the capital surpluses, uh, are pretty massive right now, and nobody knows exactly where, where to put them, uh, and, and what uh, forms of uh, production to open up, and we'll talk a little bit about that next time, uh, in relationship to the falling rate of profit. But, uh, but I think, uh, you, you know, what you're talking about is the, the creation of a, a market in land, and Marx, at a certain point, I think is wrong to sort of say, well, we can look on land as simply a form of fixed capital. I don't think that's correct. Um, I, I mean, he says that at this point in the analysis, we can treat it that way, but, but it actually has to be treated in a very different way. And So you need the analysis then of how land rents are are structured, what the relationship is to the land, the land market and property market, and there's a difference here between the inherent value of the land as opposed to what is built upon the land or what is put in the land, you know. So, so this is this is an area of uh, of uh, uh, of investigation, which is a there's a good deal of uh, uh, literature about it, and I think uh, over over time, I think people have recognised that. This is a very important segment uh, of uh, society. So that when you when you sort of ask the question, uh, how come in the 1930s there was hardly any mortgage market, and now you have a mortgage market which is huge in the United States? And 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 in the 1920s, if something went wrong in the mortgage market, it would have been a very minor incident in capital. But as we saw in 2007, 2008, something went wrong in the mortgage market, and the whole system came sort of tumbling down. So what the system is doing and and where it is in relationship to these different uh, forms of investment. Uh, but I think that what I liked about Marx's analysis is his insistence that you've really got to closely analyze the relationship between circulating and fixed capital. You've got to appreciate the different forms of fixed capital, and you've got to see that those forms of fixed capital give rise, and this is the important thing, give rise to certain kinds of aspects of credit markets and credit finances and so on, so that you start to see how the, uh, what the role is of these specific uh, markets within the totality. Because I think that one of the things that I would take from the Grundrisse, which I take a lot of inspiration from, is this idea of the totality and how important the totality is Uh, and that if we want to understand the totality, we just can't go and look at that particular market and understand the totality. We have to understand the role of that particular market within the totality. So Marx gives us some of the clues as to how to do that, but we're the ones that that have to do the work and you're the one who has to go and do the work and figure out uh, how uh, how, how this functions. But in doing it, it's important always to keep in mind what the relationships are between these very basic categories uh, that Marx is, is laying out and the dynamic relation which exists uh, between them.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Good. We have a question that's submitted by the chat, by Scott. Um, On page 728, you pointed out that the section where Marx quotes Adam Smith, who says that every fixed capital comes originally from a circulating capital, and he continues to quote Smith by saying that when circulating capital is withdrawn, it needs to be continually renewed, saying that these replenishments are drawn from three principal sources, the produce of soil, of mines, and of fisheries. Is he just saying here that free gifts of nature must be continually added?
0: I think that's what Adam Smith is saying. I'm not so sure that Marx would fully agree with that. Um, And I think that... um, um, See, I think Marx's position on this is a little bit more complicated. I didn't really get into this, but uh, but you know, I probably should have. But that one of the constraints that exists uh, on fixed capital formation is its relationship to circulating capital, and that circulating capital uh, is at the same time imprisoned to some degree by the structures of uh, uh, of the fixed capital. For example. <clears throat> If um, a state or private capital builds some vast, uh, well, builds a new airport, say, um, then the presumption is that the flights are going to go to the airport, and circulating capital is going to operate in such a way as to generate enough traffic for that airport, so that the, the, the fixed capital, which is invested in the airport, uh, isn't. Uh, the fixed cap, the value of that fixed capital can be recuperated. Now what that does is to say that circulating capital is no longer freely circulating wherever it wants. It's got to spend a lot of time uh, going to those places where there's a lot of fixed capital in order to, to validate that, that fixed capital. So the validation of the fixed capital is coming Uh, In part from uh, the way in which circulating capital responds to the fixed capital investment. Now, what Adam Smith is talking about is kind of saying, well, you know, some of this validation is not going to come so much from the consumption side, it's going to come from uh, the demand side, because so fixed capital is going to require much more in the way of new uh, resources and is therefore put a stress on sources. So, Adam Smith, you know, I think Adam Smith's argument is partially right. Uh, that if you build a, a huge kind of fixed capital investment uh, structure, uh, it's going to re- require a lot of uh, inputs uh, in terms of energy, in terms of raw materials and all the rest of it, which means that you're going to have to mine a lot more and all the rest of it. So, yes, that's, that's correct. But at the same time, also, uh, it's going to put a lot of qu- uh, pressure on, 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 on the sort of demand side uh, to say that uh, the, the demand for the, the fixed capital is going to have to come from the circulating capital. And so the circulating capital is going to have to up- operate in such a way that it, it uh, uh, services uh, the, the the fixed capital. I mean, there are some very good examples of this. I mean, just outside of Madrid, there's a city called Ciudad Madrid. They built a huge new airport costing, I don't know, two or three billion euros uh, and they were building it i guess uh, with the fantasy that somehow or other the tourist trade was going to go through there but was actually not that much around in the area which is of tourist interest and then came the crash of 2008 it's this kind of thing and the airport was never the value in the airport was never realized and uh, a few years ago they decided to auction off the airport to anybody who wanted it and i think somebody bid something like you know, fifty thousand euros for the whole Europe airport. So, so, so in effect, uh, the value of the fixed capital was lost uh, because the circulation circulating capital couldn't get there to service uh, the uh, the the debt requirements of the of, of the of the fixed capital. So, uh, I think you know that the, the quote from Smith is partially correct. It's kind of saying okay. Uh, something of this kind requires uh, is going to have big impacts on the input side, Uh, but I I think also there's a great deal of uh, impact on on the use of that fixed capital of an independent kind uh, in particular. And if the use doesn't materialize, then the value is lost. Okay, and so we'll see you uh, this time next week. And then, as I said, uh, May 5th uh, will be the celebration of Marx's birthday. So good night to you all.